today on Ag News Daily. So that's part of what we're investing in. I, I know when when we first put forward this infrastructure law, some folks said, well, there's all this stuff in here that isn't roads and bridges. That's not infrastructure. And we said, well, no, actually, pipes is infrastructure, and so is the electric grid. Uh, so uh, there, there's a lot of intention behind moving on all of these things at once. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, sponsored today by Your Soy Checkoff. Delaney Howell, joined today by Tanner Winterhoff. And Tanner, today I feel like the wet noodle. Yeah, I was wondering how you were going to introduce me. <laughs> so how's it feel to have the shoe on the other foot? A little sad. <laughs> yeah, a little melancholy. Now I feel bad. We teased you. Is, uh, is it partially due to the fact that you know today's going to be a rainy cool day in central Iowa? Uh, th- that could be part of it. I also exercised a lot yesterday, not really intentionally, but I worked out in the morning, which was fine. But then I also went on like a three mile walk last night. And <laughs> so I think that's part of it too. Didn't get to get to bed as early as I usually do. I'm a morning person, not a night person. So I went to bed late, woke up early this morning. So maybe just lack of sleep right. too. I'm not sure. But yeah, the weather definitely right. does impact your mood somewhat. It certainly does. Well, I'll tell you what might help the mood of those that have invested in ADM stocks. So Tallgrass has announced that it's entered into an agreement with ADM to pave the way to capture their carbon dioxide from their corn processing complex in Columbus, Nebraska. We've done a little bit of reporting on these CO2 pipelines that are trying to get a path across North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Illinois. But this is taking advantage of an existing pipeline that's been in place. So uh, they are looking to transport tall grass to tall grasses, Eastern Wyoming sequestration hub for permanent underground, underground storage by utilizing a converted natural gas pipeline. So no new pipeline. For this one, Delaney, it will go into an existing one, uh, and ADM is continuing to tout their slogan of being a global leader in sustainable products, furthering the decarbonized footprint of its global operations. So uh, nice little partnership there that got announced as those two entities are going to begin working together. Well, I've got some ADM news too. Surprisingly, not so exciting for ADM, but <laughs> ADM has gotten slapped with a lawsuit last October by Green Plains. It was filed in a Nebraska court alleging that ADM conducted a scheme to illegally depress the ethanol cash spot market price beginning in November of 2017. ADM just on Friday filed a motion in the Nebraska-based court asking that the motion be dismissed altogether because Green Plains had not stated a claim. Green Plains, of course, alleges that ADM's actions harmed their business. And the court originally transferred the case from the U.S. District Court for the Central District of Illinois this past March. But um, in August of 2021, the Illinois court dismissed a previous Green Plains lawsuit that argued the same claims, but as a class action. So Green Plains decided to file it then as a lawsuit. ADM is, of course, saying there is no real claim here. And that's where we see things left today, Tanner. Yeah, I saw that headline as well. Uh, and it, that's kind of the interesting part of what bad PR hits the news at the same time you release 
positive PR in your namesake. Um, but it, dig a little bit deeper into it, it does seem like Green Plains has a lot more work to do in order to put some actual merit to their case. But they could use help from an inspector, which is an awful segue into mm -hmm. an article about corn inspections going up last week. So uh, corn for overseas delivery jumped in, jumped in that last seven day period that ended May 19th, while bean and wheat assessments were declining. So that's according obviously to the ag department <clears throat> and corn ex inspections rose to 1.7 million metric tons. That's up from 1.06 million metric tons the week before. However, it's still down from 1.75 million that was during the same week last year. So still getting some exports headed across the seas, but not as high as we are hoping. But Lainey, did you take a look at the crop progress report from yesterday? Oh, you know got, I did, Tanner. We made a lot of progress. Yeah, we certainly did. Uh, farmers definitely hit the fields running, so to speak, over the past week, even with some different storm systems that brought some widespread showers to the majority of U.S. corn and soybean country last week. We still saw things increase pretty substantially. As of Sunday, 72% is complete on the corn side of things. Another 23 percentage point jump from the previous week. So not quite at the highest that we've seen put in week over week. I think the highest we've ever seen was like a 46% jump. Uh, so we're definitely catching up to the five-year average. We're typically about 79% done by this time of year. Like I said, we're at 72% done right now. And then on the soybean side of things, still a little bit behind. Planting progress is 50% finished as of Sunday, up 20 percentage points from the previous week. And a little behind the five-year average, we're typically about 55% planted as of right now. So certainly are seeing a lot of folks push the envelope, Tanner. Yeah, and it doesn't go unnoticed. We've talked a lot about the weather in certain parts here of the Midwest. The I states made the most progress during that last week, but our friends in the Dakotas are still struggling. So North Dakota is still 46 percentage points behind normal and South Dakota is 31 percentage points behind normal for their corn planting, which like you reported yesterday, Delaney has a lot of concern as to this prevented plant date coming up and crop insurance starting to fall off as farmers plant after Wednesday in those states. So quite interesting, but let's take a little break here for a word from our partner today. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your Soy Checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your Soy Checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. All right, Delaney, I've got two pieces of news left, and neither one of them are very positive. So we'll round out this uh, Tuesday with some super excitement, but a West Texas judge and three others were arrested for cattle rustling. So uh, something that you hear about in the movies, but law enforcement officials uh, traveled to 
a rural and sparsely populated West Texas County on Friday to arrest the county judge, a former sheriff's deputy, and two ranch hands for cattle rustling. Loving County Judge Skeet Jones, 71 years old, faces three counts of felony livestock theft and one count of engaging in criminal activity. The others, uh, four, all four men were taken to jail in Winkler County and have since been released on bond. But this is for the alleged gathering and selling of stray cattle without following the Texas Agricultural Code. So these procedures are meant that you have to report to stray cattle, obviously Delaney for brand recognition. So that way uh, you could claim your cattle if you had the opportunity to. Jones has been the county judge since 2007 and Leroy Medlin Jr., the former deputy, uh, was also charged on one kind of engaging in criminal activity. So if these are convicted, Delaney, they face between 10 and 20 years in prison. I saw that story as well, Tanner. Yeah, not necessarily a pleasant or positive headline this morning. And I'm not sure that this one that I have for my last story is either. But as of Thursday, we saw the Federal Reserve report released sharply higher farmland values in the Midwest and in the Plains. They said, similar to the previous quarter, the value of non-irrigated cropland rose by more than 20% from a year ago in federal districts with large agricultural concentrations. And the report, of course, is based on surveys of ag lenders and bankers. Tanner, do you fill out this survey just out of curiosity? I do. Okay, well, you're part of this uh, percentage group then, I suppose. But the largest increases were largely in Kansas, Iowa, and three Rocky Mountain states. 29% land value increase in Kansas, 28% increase in Iowa, and 32% in Colorado, Wyoming, and northern New Mexico. So certainly not an ideal time to buy farmland if you're trying to get in. Get it on the cheap, that's correct. Yeah, not yeah, not ideal timing for that. But I what? I would suspect at some point, Tanner, I mean, maybe, you know, your co-host on Farm for Profit, David Whitaker, would have a little bit more insight into this. But I'm sure you do as well, being a lender. You know, at some point, this thing is hopefully going to come back down, right? Do you have any forecasts for when that will be or any sort of warning signals or indications that we are on that trajectory? Well, you know, if we had the crystal ball for when... Uh, we certainly would not be doing a podcast. Uh, we would be <laughs> sipping whatever drink we wanted to on a yacht somewhere. But, you know, you just look at cyclical environments to where it will have to reset. The question comes, how far back is it going to reset? Which will be obviously, like you said, the crystal ball. Um, interest rates going up. We'll be interested to see what commodity prices look like 12 months from now. If we can, if we enter into a market or a time period where exports are low, production is high, prices are down, and interest rates are still up, um, it could be the time to start triggering a little bit of a setback. But land is also an inflation battling asset. So if inflation stays high, land will probably also stay high. So a lot of me talking around the question, Delaney, um, Hmm. but if anybody has a crystal ball, they need to write in and tell us about it. Yesterday, though, the Iowa State University Extension Office released their 2022 cash rental survey to go along with that land survey from the Federal Reserve. 
just a quick highlight, the state average last year, 2021, was $232 an acre. The state average for 2022 was $256 an acre. But my last piece of information for today is an article about a dairy coming out of Clovis, New Mexico. So Air Force pollution forces New Mexican dairy to euthanize over 3,600 cows was the headline for this article. Um, the Highland Dairy in Clovis, New Mexico, for a long time has not been able to sell any milk or sell any meat. So the Air Force base, that is the Cannon Air Force base, which is nearby, has been using a film forming foam that is a substance used to smother flames for fire training exercises at their Air Force base, which happens to just be next door to this dairy. And an inspection came that stated that the uh, foam being used has caused pollution in the water. So out of the seven wells that shop has for his dairy, they've all found this film in there, which creates a contaminated source of water for his herd. So he's been dumping approximately 15,000 gallons of milk every single day. And officially this week, after uh, they were stated that they can't sell the meat, they can't sell the milk, he was partnered up with uh, the New Mexico Extension Office, a vet from their organization to euthanize these cows. Now he has the erroneous task of composting them on his property and then as they compost will be to test to make sure this contamination is not continued obviously if the compost has the contamination they will treat it like a hazardous product the lady and they will have to find other ways to disperse this but so far he has amassed over six million dollars in lost revenue and they anticipate that there will be another million dollars in disposal expense plus the fact that no livestock can be grown in this area has diminished his property value. So not a good position for America's Air Force when it comes to what the settlement may look like at the end of this project. You know, I was just so impressed with your word of, or your usage of erroneous. <laughs> it's uh, been practicing, Delaney. Got to step my step up my game. Yeah, I guess. Your vocabulary is improving. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Let's pause one more time for a message from our sponsor today. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Well, Tanner, before we get into today's somewhat related Tech Tech Tuesday conversation, we wanted to take a quick look here at the markets, which opened up this morning mixed, or I should say trading in the overnight mix. We haven't opened yet here this morning as we're recording. Corn is a little bit lower today on the day, probably due to the planting progress report that we got yesterday. Soybeans are actually a little bit higher in the overnights, and wheat is still substantially trading to the upside here in the overnights. Protein markets are continuing to follow their trend from yesterday as well, with live cattle, feeder cattle, and lean hogs all trading higher on the day. All right, Delaney. 
that was the markets for today. Can you shed light on the conversation that we're going to have coming up next? Absolutely. So like I said, this isn't exactly a Tech Tuesday conversation, but somewhat related to tech nonetheless. We're playing a conversation today with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, as some may know him. And he came and chatted with us at Washington Watch a few weeks ago, talking about a couple of key issues that do impact technology and rural infrastructure, like rural broadband, et cetera, labor, electric vehicles. So we're going to get some of his comments today, Tanner. And the first one we'll kick it over here, too, is just his general comments about rural infrastructure and some current investments in rural infrastructure that are going on right now through the administration. Thanks very much, Spencer. Thanks for uh, having me through today. I thought I'd uh, just offer a few thoughts about what we're doing right now and, and uh, what it has to do with some of the things most of interest to your uh, uh, readers, listeners, and viewers. And uh, uh, and then happy to have a discussion uh, for as much as, as time allows. Um, Secretary uh, Vilsack's been very good to host us here at the Department of Agriculture. I'm sure he would say he has the, the best job in the federal government, but I think I do, uh, because we get to build the future in this moment. And uh, especially at this moment with the bipartisan infrastructure law now a reality, and with our job being to deploy those resources as effectively and as efficiently as possible, we're very much in the business of creating the foundation for what it's going to be like to live and work and do business in America for the rest of our lifetimes. And the truth is the foundation of our economy and the, the foundation of our way of life that is our infrastructure has been permitted to get shaky. And that's happened over the course of many decades. And that's been more true in rural areas than, than not. And so a big part of the solution has to be to make investments in rural infrastructure which is exactly what we're doing. And the need is enormous. Over 13% of rural roads are in poor condition. There are over 3,000 closed bridges right now in rural areas and another 50,000 that have some kind of load or weight restriction, which often has the same effect in terms of forcing people into detours and, and delays. And, of course, often it's in a rural area where you don't have a lot of alternatives when a bridge is out or load limited. Uh, can mean that uh, an average detour is three times longer in rural communities. And that, of course, affects the shipping times for products. It affects uh, uh, agriculture and the ability to export and move goods around. It affects how much we pay at the grocery uh, because shipping times turn into shipping costs. We also know there are a lot of safety issues on our roads in America, uh, and that is especially acute in rural communities. And I think about this not just in terms of the nuts and bolts of the infrastructure, but in terms of what I think is on the minds of a a lot of people, certainly a lot of parents in in rural communities, which is making sure that a new generation that grows up in a community can choose to stay and thrive there. My my own hometown, South Bend, Indiana, wouldn't really count as rural, although I should say if I walk my dogs the long way from our house, we'd go through a cornfield before we got back. But I very much know what it's like to grow up in a town where you get the message, at least unofficially, that success has to do with getting out. And to me, what's at stake in investing in rural infrastructure is allowing people the chance to thrive where they started out, to put down roots where they were planted. And 
if a young person looks around their community and they see that the infrastructure has not been looked after, that is a not-so-subtle message that there might not be a future in their community. But by the, by the same token, if they look around and they see that those investments are happening, they see that the public infrastructure is improving, then I think that creates a sense and a reality that prosperity could be in these communities as well as in our biggest population centers around the country. I have a feeling doing this conversation is going to continue to be eye-opening. But it looks like as we step into his next piece of the conversation, we cover a a wide variety of transportation issues. So we're going to hear his answer here on continued investment in those bridges like he just discussed and what it means to lower the cost of getting goods imported from various places around. So let's listen to hear what he has to say here. So in, in, in practice, what does all this mean? Investments we're making in bridges mean that there's less wear and tear on vehicles. The investments we're making in the physical infrastructure that our supply chains run across means lower shipping costs at a time when we're fighting inflation with everything that we've got. Faster movement of goods is not just about what you see most of the coverage on, which is, uh, you know, PlayStations and, and shoes coming from, from Vietnam or China. It's about our goods getting out, of course. Uh, matter of fact, the, the secretary here was just uh, reminding me that a big part of America's competitive advantage uh, on our agricultural exports has to do with the efficiency and cost effectiveness of how we move them. We've got to make investments in that in order to preserve it, and the investments we're making are going to help. Uh, in terms of some of the specific issues we've seen with our supply chains, uh, we've been teaming up with our partners from the Department of Agriculture and others around the uh, interagency. We've opened uh, what are called pop-up ports, temporary container yards, at key agricultural export centers and nodes. Uh, we've made an unprecedented level of funding available to modernize port infrastructure in particular. We're working on data sharing between a lot of the key players, data that many people might assume is already shared, but it isn't, uh, from ports to terminal operators to shippers to uh, warehouses uh, to railroads and others. Employment trucking has risen to its highest level since 1990, but we know what we're up against in terms of both recruiting and retention of truckers, and we're making investments to do something about that. And I just want to make sure it's, it's, it's understood how important investing in rural America is to us. And we've been doing that even before the bill passed. So, for example, one of our signature programs called INFRA, the discretionary grant program that ran about a billion dollars last year, has a, a statutory set-aside. You have to spend 25% in rural areas. We did 44%. Because that's how many of the good applications that wound up winning uh, on the merits came from, from rural communities. Uh, we have a whole new program now that is specifically dedicated to rural surface transportation, $300 million this year, to make travel safer, to increase access to markets, to do the things that rural communities need done. Uh, the last thing I'll just mention is that uh, uh, I have found that uh, most people I talk to in farming are in the business of managing uncertainty for a living. And we can reduce some of the sources of uncertainty uh, around supply chains. We can cushion some of the sources of uncertainty, I would argue, uh, associated with our climate if we make the right choices right now. And that's what our, our administration recognizes a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation opportunity to do. So these are the investments that we're working on. We're proud to be doing them, and hopefully you will see us in communities near you 
talking about and, and even more important than telling, showing what these investments can be. I'll stop there so we can have a back and forth. But thank you again for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So much of the Additionally, Tanner, again, maybe not necessarily a technology issue, but somewhat a technology issue, because if things are getting stuck at our ports, we're not getting the technology in our hands that we need to. And so we also asked Mayor Pete or Secretary Pete a question about labor at the ports and what's being done to help alleviate some of those stressors that we see. So one of the first questions that, that arose uh, from the White House, actually, when we had the idea of uh, pushing 24-7 operations at our biggest container ports was, do we have the, the uh, staffing, the, the labor to do it? And I'll say in our conversations with the longshore workers, uh, they have stepped up and made sure that, that they are ready to staff and, and, and operate these increased assets, these increased hours, um, because there's, there's increased need. Look. I know there's this sense out there that, that we're moving less goods th than we have before. It's actually not the case. If, if you look at L.A. Long Beach, for example, uh, just got the numbers on the first quarter of this year, it is an all-time record high in terms of the volume that's moved. It's just that the demand is even greater, and so the supply and the supply chains are having trouble keeping up. And that, but that movement that's happened is, is largely uh, credit to the workers in that sector. I do think workforce more broadly is going to continue to be a challenge, whether it's in uh, operations or the sheer level of building that we've got to do to uh, deliver these investments that, that the law has funded. And it's one of the reasons why we're really emphasizing the, the different steps that are needed to, to get people trained and skilled up. I was just in Coloma, Wisconsin, um, uh, smack in the, in the geographic middle of the state, uh, where the operating engineers have, a, a, I think, a couple hundred acres uh, of training facility, they they can do every. It's like a uh, if the kids in a con construction, it's like their their ultimate fantasy of a, of a, um, a sandbox to to. Um, but but obviously very serious stuff going on there in terms of training on everything from excavators to uh, to pile drivers um, to prepare that next generation for the future. And they drew kids from all around the state. And the other day I was there was a, a program for high schoolers, an externship day. Uh, where students could come and, and get a sense of, of what it would actually be like to work in that field. And we need young people to know that there are good-paying jobs that are available uh, that require skill and sophistication but don't require a college degree. And that there's a, a long, steady pipeline of those jobs because this infrastructure law is a multi-year plan. Uh, so we're going to continue having to work to make sure that we have the, uh, the, the human resources to, to do this. Um, but uh, there's no doubt in my mind that America has the capacity to make it happen. You've got to support that, that workforce development. Glad that it's a focus, or at least it's on their agenda, because we don't want, obviously, wartime Ukraine is different on how they're handling their ports, but we certainly don't want to have any issues here because of the supply shortages that we have. But now our listeners, I think, are going to find value in the next question asked around our rural communities. A lot of you battle certain circumstances every single day. So let's listen in on his comments about 
what can be done to help rural communities? Uh, look, uh, small communities don't have a legion of federal compliance experts who can put together the, the applications to even get after this money. It takes resources to get resources. And so I'm determined to make us more user-friendly than we've ever been for smaller communities. A few things we're doing to make good on that. Uh, one, we're, we're, um, uh, we're recommitting to the Routes Council. That, that's a, uh, an internal body in the DOT that works to make sure our programming is accessible to rural communities. Another thing we're doing is we're taking multiple programs, like some of those I, I ticked off earlier just to take you through the month of May, and we're rolling some of those programs into common applications. For example, we took the mega program, the infra program, and the rural program. We put them all in one. It's the same logic as a, a common college application so that an applicant doesn't have to fill in their zip code seven different times on seven different pieces of paperwork. Uh, and just get all that in at once and then render the decision at once, too. Uh, we're offering technical assistance to help smaller communities navigate those processes. And just as importantly, there are a lot of compliance processes if you do uh, get the money. On the bridge program, we've, uh, we've got through the infrastructure law provisions so that some of that funding that's typically been an 80-20 match can be a 100% uh, match because we know 20% might not sound like a lot, but that could be the difference between going in for the funds and, and not being able to even try. Uh, so we're taking every measure we can think of to get out of our own way in getting these dollars out to, to communities. Otherwise, uh, I agree that the process can be so burdensome that the very communities that need the most help uh, will question whether this program is useful. And Tina, I think this one is more important now than ever because we are continuing to see pushback from folks on both sides about biofuels. But he was also asked, what role do you think biofuels play, especially as we move towards decarbonization? First, we're, we're talking about a big and complex transition. So there's no question that, that biofuels are, are going to be a very important part of, of America's energy mix. I would also point to areas where I think there's a lot of upside growth potential um, to include uh, the maritime sector, which has proven very hard to decarbonize and could potentially benefit uh, from biofuels and other fuels with lower life cycle uh, carbon emissions. Um, I would also point to aviation. You know, uh, we're, we're not going to see electrically propelled wide-body jets anytime soon. Uh, but what we are seeing is a move towards sustainable aviation fuels, where I believe uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the heartland could, could play an important and exciting role. And, and I do want to mention on, on the electric vehicle opportunity that the fact that uh, from, a, from a consumer perspective, it's probably in rural America that many people, provided they can afford electric vehicles, and we're working on helping with that with our tax credit policy, can uh, it's in those regions where there's the most upside for, for the simple reason that people drive longer distances, so they buy more gas or diesel, so they're going to save more money. And you add to that the fact that it's in rural communities that people are most likely to live in single-family homes which means uh, you have some kind of charging infrastructure available to you already. It's, it's the plug in your wall uh, in, in a garage. And so I, I, I know that, that electric vehicles entered the market and, and, and entered our imagination maybe as, as something for affluent city dwellers. Um, but especially when you see these pickup trucks coming on the market, uh, I actually think from a consumer's perspective, it will be in, especially over the next three to five years, in rural America that a lot of the most compelling uh, uses and, and, uh, and savings actually materialize. Lastly, Delaney, I get to introduce a question that you asked while you were out there, and I'm glad that you did, but uh, you focused a little bit on, I shouldn't even say a little bit, you just asked pretty pointedly about the future of electric vehicles and 
what that looks like for the U.S. And Pete had some good answers for this, so let's listen in. So that's part of what we're investing in. I, I know when when we first put forward this infrastructure law, some folks said, well, there's all this stuff in here that isn't roads and bridges. That's not infrastructure. And we said, well, no, actually pipes is infrastructure, and so is the electric grid. Uh, so uh, there, there's a lot of intention behind moving on all of these things at once. Uh, we do, I mean, if you look at the loads that would be required for, uh, um, you know, the equivalent of a truck stop to be an electric uh, uh, filling station, uh, that is enormous load, and it requires different infrastructure than we have right now. We have, we've set up a joint office with uh, our department and the Department of Energy to make sure that as we roll out the, the funding that we're putting out, you know, we've got $5 billion going out um, to create a, a, a backbone of the national highway network with, with electric chargers, plus another 2.5 for community charging. As we do that, we need to be very intentional about those needs. And, uh, look, there, there's, there's the states that we're working with on the formula dollars, but there's 3,000 utilities in this country, large and small, that we need to be working with on that grid piece. Uh, it's certainly a challenge, but it's the kind of challenge that we need to sink our teeth into. It certainly can't be invoked as an excuse to, to maintain the status quo. Well, Tanner, I think that was, I won't say enlightening. Let's say that definitely added probably some clarity for folks who had some ideas about what they thought the administration felt towards certain issues. I mean, I think, you know, as we continue to hear from legislators that I talked to or the NAFB talked to, we're getting a pretty clear outline of what this administration's priorities are. Yeah, and I think he articulated very well, although be it definitely political, uh, certainly is good to know at least where they stand. So we don't have to wish or expect something that isn't going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty clear on their intentions. And, and like, like he was saying there at the end, and like I asked, you know, getting to electric vehicles across the entire United States is not really probably plausible because we don't have the infrastructure to support that. And there is no infrastructure in rural America that would allow you to have an electric vehicle tanner and charge it. Correct. Yeah. Very few, especially when you look at the Tesla market of its charger versus alternative electric vehicle sources for charge and they no. don't match up. So uh, quite interesting, but I say that's enough for today, so should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 